Welcome back to Last Week in Medicine. Uh, it's February 24th, 2023. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today I am joined by uh, frequent co-host Dr. Austin Rupp. Hello. And uh, special guest, Dr. Mita Hoppenfeld. Welcome to the podcast, Mita. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, we, we've wanted to have you on for a while, so we're glad we could pin you down this, this month. So uh, maybe for our listeners who don't know you, Mita, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I, uh, I'm a hospitalist here at the U. Um, I've sort of lived all over the country, so Arizona, uh, Boston, Texas, back to Boston, California, and now here. Um, and I do a lot of clinical medicine. My area of interest outside of clinical medicine is a lot of like translational, how do you connect inpatient to outpatient medicine and things like that. Um, I, let's see, outside of medicine, I have two kids. Um, my husband and I like to hike. I don't do any winter sports. I have no interest in winter sports, even though it's winter here in Salt Lake City. Um, and uh, I knit and I bake a lot. So deep down, I'm like 65 years old. <laughs> awesome. So you you did uh, your medical school back in Boston, is that right? Yep, Boston University. And then uh, you you were going to be an anesthesiologist, but then you had like a some kind of an epiphany. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I did, um, I originally matched in anesthesia, um, and I did an internal medicine prelim year. And I realized that internal medicine as a medical student and internal medicine as a doctor are really different things. And I really enjoyed the actual practice of, of medicine as a physician. Um, and tried anesthesia for a year. It's a fantastic field. It wasn't for me. And, um, just switched into medicine and have enjoyed it ever since. Oh, right on. Um, no, that's awesome. So you 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 started out at Mass General, then went to Stanford, then for medicine residency, where you were a chief resident. Yeah, I did my chief resident year at Stanford. Um, go big trees. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah it it was lovely. It was a great experience. Awesome. Well, uh, we're, we're glad to have you on today, and I think you're going to do the first paper for us, so we'll just let you take it away. Yeah, sure. So this paper, um, Clinical Infectious Disease, um, I think it's a pre-publication, um, but it's antimicrobial for 7 or 14 days for febrile urinary tract infection in men. Um, it was a multi-center, non-inferiority, double-blind, placebo-control randomized clinical trial. That's a mouthful. Um, and it's really interesting. So I'll kind of go through their background and thoughts. So ultimately, the the point of doing this paper was because there's a lot of um, antimicrobial questions about how short can we give antibiotic therapy um, from a public health perspective, decreasing things like C. diff infections and um, resistant bacteria with shorter courses of antibiotics. And then from a patient perspective, um, decreasing complications and side effects of antibiotic therapy. Um, and I didn't know this, but 20% 20, 20 of all UTIs occur in men. Um, so it's reasonable to say, well, we know an optimum duration 
it's well established the optimum duration for antibiotics for women, but um, if they have febrile UTIs or pylo, shorter courses like seven days is reasonable. But for men, the question is still open-ended. Um, it seems like there have been um, some trials in the past where they've done post hoc analysis of, of subgroups of men with UTIs um, that showed there was no significant difference between seven and 14 days of antibiotic therapy in terms of resolution of symptoms. So the question is, if you actually look at it and you do a non-inferiority trial, um, is it that uh, there's sort of equivalent or um, is seven days actually non-inferior or to 14 days in men with febrile UTIs? So that was their logic um, because a lot of the data that's been there thus far has been in afebrile UTIs for men or at least included afebrile UTIs. Yeah, I think so we... I remember a paper a couple of years ago that was specifically afebrile UTIs mm -hmm. in men, right? It was looking, was it also looking at seven versus 14? I don't remember. The, the one that they reference in the paper here is looking at seven versus 14 days, but that was a subgroup analysis here that they did. And it included afebrile and febrile men. Yeah. No, I guess I think the one we, we talked about was different. It was specifically just men with afebrile UTIs, I think, and it was another non-inferiority, and I'm pretty sure there was no difference for seven and 14 days. It was, they were pretty much equivalent. Um, so then this, this one is specifically looking at men with febrile UTI. Mm -hmm. And in clinical practice, I think it's really helpful because I see a lot of patients who have, who are men who have pylo um, or men that do have febrile UTIs, and I typically follow the data that we've had for, for women. Um, which is that shorter course, courses are better, um, or rather uh, non-inferior. So this trial was interesting, uh, pretty well designed. It's uh, French, so it was multi-center across, across uh, 27 different sites in France. Um, their inclusion criteria were adult men. They had uh, febrile UTI, either as um, they had like an elevated temperature or a uh, reduced temperature, so above 38C, or below 36. Um, and then they had symptoms, so dysuria, urinary frequency, things like that. Um, and then they had to have leukocyturia on analysis of their urine. And they also had to have only one uropathogen. So they couldn't have multiple pathogens. Um, it just had to be one uropathogen that was susceptible to fluoroquinolones, third generation cephalosporins, or, and I've never heard of this, naladixic acid. I don't know if you guys have heard about that. So uh, sounds for our French. Purposes, for, sounds, yeah. For our purposes, one uropathogen susceptible to fluoroquinolones or third generation cephalosporins. They excluded people that were in shock when they presented or if they had a hospital acquired UTI. So that's a UTI within um, 48 hours of hospitalization. Um, if they had been on antimicrobial treatment for a UTI um, in the past 12 months, um, had a high probability of death at three months. And I think that was just like clinician driven. Um, and then sort of a few other things, several other things that uh, I'm not going to go through. So the way they did it is they randomized patients at day three after antibiotic therapy um, initiation they basically got the urine culture results and they said that, um, they, they basically said that 
either you're going to be in a group that receives antibiotics for seven days, and then on day eight, you receive placebo for eight through 14, or you get antibiotics for eight through 14. And then they followed that. They define their success as uh, either micro as both microbiologic and clinical. So microbiologic is a negative urine culture um, at their follow-up. And clinical success was basically having no fever or UTI symptoms after completion of antibiotic therapy until their follow-up evaluation at six weeks. Um, so their primary endpoint is basically treatment success uh, with clinical success. Um, so that's the no fever UTI symptoms at six weeks and microbiologic success where they basically say, you know, your urine, your UTI has cleared fully from a microbiologic perspective. Their secondary endpoints were um, rectal carriage of fluoroquinolone resistance and then recurrent UTI with the same pathogen between six to 12 weeks. Those are the main ones. Um, I get really into the stats of non-inferiority trials. I think non-inferiority trials are, they're like unique to medicine and we're just gonna keep seeing them more and more and more because people aren't, proving superiority of a drug is really, really tough. We obviously can't statistically prove equivalence of a drug. So we have to have non-inferiority where we say, okay, what is an acceptable margin? And so the FDA has defined an acceptable margin as 10%, um, which I don't know if that's arbitrary or not, but basically if you're- That feels pretty arbitrary. <laughs> I should say, I, I do know it's arbitrary. <laughs> but like, if you're within 10% of that, then um, it's considered non-inferior. So what mm -hmm. they did is, and this is a really well-written uh, actually very easy to understand statistical analysis section that they did. So they said, assuming 90% of participants in both treatment groups would, would attain treatment success. So they basically thought at seven days and 14 days, both of these groups, 90% of them would be, um, would be successful in terms of clinical and microbiologic clearance. They powered their study to have um, 80% power, and their non-inferiority margin was 10%. So basically, if you like think about this, the, what they're trying to say is that if you have, um, if you run this study 100 times, 80 times, you would be able to reject your null hypothesis that antibiotics for seven days is is more than 10% worse than antibiotics for 14 days. So it's a really interesting, um, it's, it's, it's really well written in the way they explain it here. Um, so they had to have 284 participants, which unfortunately I think because of finances, they weren't able to get that. They were only able to get 240, so they weren't able to adequately power their study. But I think if you look at their primary outcomes, it doesn't really matter. Um, so they have a really beautiful table and I'm not gonna go through all their results, but the most obvious one is if you go and look at their table, table, let me scroll down here, table two. 
So difference in risk of treatment success six weeks after first day of antibiotic therapy in the intention to treat and per protocol analysis. So I should mention they did an intention to treat analysis, which is really nice. So as they were randomized, that's how they were um, analyzed. Um, so their main analysis point is basically the number of participants that had microbiologic and clinical um, success uh, was in the seven-day therapy group, 64 out of 115 participants. And in the 14-day group, 97 out of 125 for a risk difference of 21 percentage points. <laughs> Meaning they had a non-inferiority cutoff, their, their margin was 10%. And if their risk difference was less than 10%, they could say, ah, seven days is non-inferior non -inferior to 14 days. But what they found was that it had a risk difference of 21%, meaning it's 21% worse, essentially, um, than uh, seven days. Seven days is 21% worse than 14 days. So it's very clearly inferior. Um, this is a study where you can't prove superiority. It wasn't set up like that. You can't comment on it. So the 21% doesn't say anything. But all we can say based off of this is that seven days is not enough time to treat uh, a febrile UTI in men who meet this inclusion criteria. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, a lot of this was based, if you actually look um, in their microbiologic success, so they hadn't cleared their uropathogen. Clinical success actually looked pretty, pretty good. It was a 4.3% difference. Um, so that is non-inferior for clinical success. But um, microbiologic success, success was found to be um, inferior. And uh, it was also inferior in terms of needing more antibiotics at the end of treatment, meaning those who did seven days of therapy ended up needing antibiotics more frequently than those who did the 14 days subsequent antibiotics. So um, I was a little confused by that, Mita. I don't know, like the, so, so yeah, the clinical success, I think they say is no fever, right? Do they talk about the symptoms? Like, I'm not questioning you, but like the clinical success, I think was no fever. The micro success was no urine culture growth. And then they couldn't get antibiotics for a new UTI within the six weeks also, right? That was my take. They had to have all three of those things, no fever, no micro growth and no new antibiotics to meet the primary outcome <clears throat> was how I interpreted that. And I don't know. I mean, my, one of my big critiques was the micro criterion. Like, I don't know how important that is. And, you know, I think we can talk about that, but then it was weird to me that they 95% met clinical success, but that, you know, only 80% or then that 80% ended up getting or 20% got antibiotics within the seven day arm, right? Like, I don't know, that was a little strange to me. Like clinical success is much higher than they get new antibiotics. So are they then, like is symptoms included in, in this primary outcome or are they not? And if they're not, I guess then it makes sense because they could still meet clinical success, but if they had symptoms, then they got antibiotics and then they didn't meet the primary outcome. That was very confusing, I think. But micro is not important to yeah, me. No. Symptoms are important, but then why did 20% get antibiotics if they're meeting you know, the clinical success criterion. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, clinical success, and I think I missed that this the first time, clinical success was just defined as no fever mm-hmm. after completion of antibiotic therapy until main evaluation at six weeks after initiation of therapy. So I think it doesn't talk about their symptoms at all. It just talks about their fevers. So I'm assuming that those patients didn't have a fever, but still had symptoms like dysuria or urgency and ended up getting uh, more antibiotics. Because I think that's like the most, like that group to me then is like a gray area. of Did they fail or not? And what did they grow from their culture? They say that there was a recurrent, you know, infection from, like the numbers were really small in both arms of recurrence, right? Of the same pathogen. So I guess it's a new pathogen. I guess it needs to be treated. And I guess they really did fail, but I'm just trying to figure out how we can invalidate this. <laughs> I'm playing the Emily Spivak role here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, you can, there's like several things you can say that this study wasn't powered properly because um, they weren't able to get their participants. And so can we really say this? It's a pretty big difference though the 20 percent, you can say that's driven by microbiology but then Mm -hmm. looking at like the clinical success those patients did pretty well but then they ended up needing a lot of antibiotics afterwards anyways so i don't really know the interesting thing was the predictive factors of treatment success i think that if they were if they had more patients and were able to break it down a little bit further it was basically use your clinical judgment, like patients that are sicker at baseline that have a higher Charleston comorbidity index, obesity, and other multiple comorbidities were more likely to fail the seven days of therapy versus the ones that um, were a little bit healthier. Um, So a lower Charleston comorbidity index, those patients were likely to do better. So I think some of it is our clinical judgment on this but it does make me question, what am I doing for my patients who are men who have febrile UTIs? Should I be giving them an extended course of antibiotics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think the biggest criticism that we'll probably see of this was just the way they defined their primary outcome of including that microbiological cure, because we don't usually test for cure. Some people mm-hmm. do. I think like urology will frequently test for cure, especially if they're going to be doing any procedures. But usually we give them antibiotics and we say if you're symptom free, then you're good. And so actually checking the urine like, um, and I don't know if that's something the FDA requires or why they, why they chose to do that. It's just not standard practice. So that's kind of interesting. The other thing though is like who uses low dose ofloxacin to treat urinary tract infections the french apparently the french do i don't know I don't like know. If, if you look at like ofloxacin is labeled the same for complicated or uncomplicated utis it's 200 milligrams twice a day which is similar mm-hmm. to i think it's analogous to like using levofloxacin 250 milligrams a day which we wouldn't mm-hmm. we wouldn't use that dose to treat a complicated UTI or a, a febrile UTI in a man. So I think like, so you're kind of giving like a lower dose of antibiotics. So maybe that's why it required 14 days to, uh, to kill everything. Um, but like, if you're just going to use levofloxacin 750, maybe that's going to kill everything in, in seven. Um, I don't you know. But, your Achilles. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I think like the, the clinical success was like 96% in the seven days and 100% in the 14 days. I'm like, 
which was statistically different, but I was like, those are both pretty good numbers. But but I I, I agree based on the non inferiority margin that they set and the criteria and all of that, like, yeah, seven days was not as good as 14 days. But I, I think like, I guess at the end of the day, when you read this paper, is this going to change practice? I don't know. I, I like the, your point, the point you made, Mita, about like the people with like more comorbidities, you know, that, that predicted a treatment failure. Like maybe those are the folks where you're more conservative the groups were and, you tr- and you treat longer. Yeah, they weren't perfectly I mean, balanced. No, no. I mean, yeah, there's more obesity, more diabetes, more immunodepression, more CKD. I mean, it's small numbers, but it's, you know, double. It's 13 CKDs versus six. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they had more BPH in the in the 14-day group. And you just wonder if that's like, it, you know, 10 patients in a 140 group, you know, makes a difference probably, right? I mean, it's, you know, a great, it's a good, it's well-designed and it's a good study and it's a great question but it's still pretty small. I mean, you know, 140 or 120 in each group, 115 and 125. So I think, you know, the groups, I think they were matched as well as they could have been, but that was another huge point for me was like just that little bit sicker chronically. And, you know, their CCI is the same. I get that. It's like a mean of zero or median of zero on both sides, Mm -hmm. but you know, they're not perfectly matched. So maybe you could invalidate it that way too, too, as I'm trying to do. And then the only (laughs) other thing I wanted to say was that they could have, prostate tenderness on exam you know like that was one of the symptoms that they looked for and so mm-hmm. you know what is prostatitis is prostatitis a different you know diagnosis than a uti and like is that was that you know confounding things and made this group heterogeneous and that you have some prostatitis thrown in there and like maybe they do need a longer course so mm-hmm. i probably would have excluded them not that i'm doing rectal exams on all patients that with utis but you know, that's, uh, that was my only other point. I thought the groups weren't really maybe as matched as well as they could have been. The prostate tenderness was a little bit, uh, questionable. And then the primary outcome was a little, not quite, you know, what I would have picked, I don't think, but Mita, at the end of the day, your point is very valid that this was a, an, inf- this was inferior. And I don't know Jenkins, if it's practice changing, but it absolutely is going to make me think twice about the, you know, the old guy with a febrile UTI. Mm-hmm. Um, that I've historically been treating with seven days. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm not seeing them get readmitted, I don't think, but maybe I've seen it, they do a really good job in their discussion of talking about all of their limitations and addressing it. So they basically go through everything where they say no one actually gets urine cultures anymore except for urologists that are follow ups, but this was something we considered. And um, they, talk about why they didn't go through urologic symptoms because it's much more subjective and kind of like an ammonia can be persistent even after you finish antibiotic therapy. I mean, for me, when I look at it, I agree with you entirely, Austin, that like, it's a little bit tough when you look at the groups and it looks like, well, there's like a lot more patients that have CKD in the seven day therapy group, um, than the 14 day therapy group. But I think that, um, the main takeaway I'm going to take from this study is that like you said, in the old patient that has, that's obese with diabetes, that's coming in with a febrile UTI, I probably am not going to do a prostate exam on them, but I am going to worry about those patients being sicker. And I wonder if the patients ended up doing better on 14 days, because you always query whether men with febrile UTIs have some element of prostatitis and need a longer course of antibiotics. Um, So that would be probably my practice changing thing where I stop and I go, "Hmm, these patients look sick, 
is sick, mm-hmm. maybe I give more antibiotics. And we might not be seeing it because we're hospitals and don't do outpatient medicine. And these patients follow up with their PCPs. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. And no worse adverse events, right? I mean, we should say that like 14 was not, there were no, you know, increased adverse events. Who knows what happens down the line, but like this shorter is better dogma is like, maybe, you know, deserves a, a, a bump, a break tap in some ways, right? Like is, is seven days of antibiotics really that big of a deal? Like now taking off my stewardship hat, like if they're getting cured more at like 20%, seven days is probably not a huge deal and maybe worth doing. And I think that also depends on what antibiotics are we using. Like they specifically use fluoroquinolones, which we usually don't use unless someone puts a gun to our head. And so like, you know, I think Bactrim is probably a good option if they can handle Bactrim. But, um, you know, know, beta-lactams are frequently poo-pooed for urinary tract infections, but we use beta-lactams pretty frequently. Um, And so... Yeah, like fluoroquinolones, we kind of reserve if that's like the only option. That's a good oral drug. Cool. Well, I think we've talked about... So should we start using maledixic acid and getting urine cultures on everyone? This is France. Just it's it's doesn't apply to us. They have, they have different bladder flora in France? No. Okay, I think we should talk about something else now. Hey, Austin, am I Austin you want to go next? Yeah, I guess. Um... Yes, sure. So I'm talking about um, the lower GI bleeding guidelines, and uh, I'm going to try and make this efficient. So uh, it's called this. I mean, you know, this was I guess it's a paper. It's it's guidelines, but management of patients with acute lower GI bleeding, an updated American College of Gastroenterology or ACG guideline. Oh, we should mention the uh, the name of the old uh, male UTI. What was it? Prosta short. How did they get to that? (laughs) All right. Anyway, um, so we're talking about lower GI bleeding here. um, And this was published in uh, in February in the American Journal of Gastroenterology written by Sengupta et al. Um, I am not going to go through all of these. I think I'm going to hit the high points. Um, So I guess, you know, a little bit of background. Lower GI bleeding refers to colorectal bleeding, not small bowel bleeding. And um, for me, I'm glad that I read these because, and and I'm not sure that I feel any differently about lower GI bleeding, but very very frustrating hospital problem. Um, You know, they come in um, with hematochesia, the bleeding stops, you don't find the source and there's nothing to do, even if you do find the source. It's my nihilistic um, way of looking at lower GI bleeding, but, you know, at least there's guidelines and we're going to talk about those um, a little bit. You know, this is a big problem, um, greater than 100,000 admissions annually, the it's probably going up. Um, the risk factor, you know, risk factors include antiplatelet and antithrombotic meds, which are um, presumably going to use more and more frequently as AFib and stuff like that is diagnosed more and more frequently. Um, so there were 12 recommendations and 10 key concepts. Um, key concepts basically mean that like they aren't, these things were not amenable to the grade process of, um, you know, organizing data essentially and are mostly expert opinion or extrapolation of evidence. Um, so, um, you know, I think to, to kind of just hit the high points, um, they, they recommend using a, a risk stratifying score and they talk about the Oakland score, um, specifically, which is based on one second here, uh, age, um, sorry, one second, 
yeah, age, sex, previous lower GI bleeding, digital rectal exam findings, heart rate, systolic blood pressure, and hemoglobin. And a score of less than eight predicts um, safe early discharge, essentially. And at the end, they say more information is needed here. And this has not been validated in the ER population. But I think the future hopefully holds low risk GI bleeding equals outpatient management, um, although we're not there right now. But they do say calculate the score. And after the patient is admitted, think about early discharge, possibly without colonoscopy, um, which we will hit on later. But, um, you know, worth knowing that there's something in the toolbox to maybe help us more sort of conservatively manage these folks. Um, you know, they say resuscitate adequately to heart rate and blood pressure, only mentioning that because it's also mentioned in the context of a restriction, a restrictive transfusion strategy. So more guidelines um, coming out with restrictive transfusion strategies. And they say the evidence is low, but um, I think, you know, there's, there's been a, a shift in the last 10 years that way. And um, mm -hmm. this is more more data for that. So and sometimes. Or, you know, now well, Go sometimes ahead. you got to give the IV fluids to dilute their hemoglobin enough to where you can justify giving a blood transfusion. I'm just kidding. <laughs> How I do it. How I do it. There you go. Very nice. Um, so yeah, resuscitate effectively. Um, use a re uh, restrictive transfusion strategy. Um, you know, rule out upper GI bleeding, which I think sort of goes without say, without mentioning. But um, you know, they say rule out GI bleeding, but you have to be suspicious for GI bleeding based basically on clinical uh, suspicion, you know, take a good history and physical. If they have um, a history of cirrhosis, think about, you know, upper GI bleeding that way. But um, they, you know, say most patients should get a colonoscopy. Um, they're, they're pretty hedgy about this. You know, they're like, most patients should get a colonoscopy unless they shouldn't, um, essentially was what my takeaway was. But I think this is something that, you know, if we're getting pushed back about colonoscopies, that um, we can say, hey, the guidelines say, say that we should do them. Um, but they also acknowledge that they are not all that effective in finding the source and that they're very rarely intervening and that um, they don't maybe even prevent re-bleeding. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's all. Um, no, I think I thought, I guess the takeaway I thought was, you know, they're decent at finding where the source is or at least excluding, you know, malignancy, but it's rare that you actually see the stigmata of recent bleeding, and it's rare that it, there's an intervenable source, right? And so, yeah, that, which is basically what you said. But there is utility in a colonoscopy. They, they did seem to pretty much say, like, we recommend that everyone get a colonoscopy while they're admitted, unless they've had a colonoscopy in the last 12 months that was, had a good prep and showed diverticula then you don't need to do it in those folks. But like, how often is that the case? Like, it's pretty rare that someone comes in, you're like, oh, you just had a colonoscopy 10 months ago and it was pristine. Like, that's pretty uncommon. These are usually, well, not usually, but frequently old, older folks, maybe they haven't had a colonoscopy in a long time. Maybe they've never had a colonoscopy. Um, and, you know, these people that are all on anticoagulation for their AFib and et cetera, like they're, they're not people that are getting regular colonoscopies, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's all a, a good summary. You know, they say it's the di diagnostic test of choice because you can, you know, potentially get a diagnosis, potentially get a biopsy and potentially intervene. But the yield, you know, yeah, they see stigmata of recent hemorrhage from anywhere from 30 to 80 percent. Um, active bleeding in 4% in one study, and then actually intervene anywhere from like 3 to 6%. So, you know, that kind of makes you wonder, like, 
should we really be doing this? But, you know, they say we should do it. So take that to the GI doctors. Like we should be doing this, I guess. Um, no, yeah, I, you, like you said, cancer in 2.5%. So yeah, you got to like rule that out. But a pretty small percent, but like an important diagnosis you don't want to miss. And and I agree with you. Like you, you do sometimes, I think that's why this is kind of a frustrating disease is you often do get pushback from the gastroenterology team about doing a colonoscopy. And and the guidelines here do state, like, it doesn't have to be an urgent colonoscopy. So it doesn't have to be within the first 24 hours because there's no benefit to that. But at the same time, you don't want these patients just, like, sitting in the hospital waiting, doing nothing. It's like, well, you're here. Let's get this done and get you out of here. Whereas GI is like, ah, oh, yeah, let them, you know, sit over the weekend and see what happens. It's like, no, we're not going to do that. You're either going to scope them or we're going to discharge them for an outpatient scope. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, you know, that's one of the areas that they say, again, that we need to figure out what we're doing. You know, what's the, can we risk stratify these folks better and actually do this outpatient and can it not be six months until the next colonoscopy appointment? You know, these are system, system issues, but um, yeah, it, it can, can be frustrating. And again, I don't think this made it any less frustrating, but at least there's guidelines. <laughs> um Okay, so the other things that I thought were, were important were that CTA should be the initial test in the hemodynamically unstable patient and stay tuned for if that should be the initial test in other folks, most folks. Um, you know, That's sensitivity. The question I had. I thought that was super cool because I, mm -hmm. for these patients that have this slow bleed, the, the CTA versus the very controversial tag red blood cell study um, makes me say that would be very interesting to see a study about that. Yeah, I think we need more data, but they, you know, talk about the sensitivity and specificity of CTA was was 90 and 92% for localizing bleed in a meta-analysis of 14 observational studies. I mean, those are observational studies, but, you know, that's a good test. And that, you know, for 80% of folks with an initial negative CTA in a different study, they had no further evidence of re-bleeding and did not require intervention. So those are all, you know, reassuring numbers. I mean, if there's a bleed, you're going to find it in most folks. If you don't find a bleed, they're probably going to be okay. So um, yeah, that was surprising to me and potentially, you know, um, ch practice changing a little bit. Um, so yeah, I thought that was interesting. Then then we get into the therapeutics, which I think we can mostly sort of breeze over, you know, if there's extravasation, call IR and maybe get an embolization. They talk a little bit about colonoscopy versus embolization. And I think that's a little bit beyond our scope. We can let GI and IR argue amongst themselves. Um, Jenkins, you already talked about the 24 versus, you know, sort of 24 to 72 hours, no difference. So you don't need to get them the colonoscopy within 24 hours. Um, they talk a lot about the prep. They say split preps are good. They also talk about like less than a liter preps, you know, like 300, 500 mLs of like some really osmotic stuff, it sounds like. I would love that. I mean, how often are we fighting with patients about colonoscopy preps? So low volumes um, may be adequate. And I think and hope yeah. that, that will be coming. Here, just drink four liters of this disgusting liquid. That's easy. Oh, sorry. You know, drink two liters right now, and then, but you have to chug it, and then we're gonna have you do it again at six in the morning. <laughs> like, yeah, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Yeah. So, um, low volume preps would be great, and and ACG. Let's hear more about that. Um, and then, um, you know, they talk a lot about uh, antiplatelet and antithrombotic and, and and anticoagulation medications. The high points, or you know, they overtly say discontinued 
NSAIDs, which which we like, you know, no NSAIDs in, in folks who have had a lower GI bleed because it's associated with higher risk of rebleed. Um, discontinue aspirin for primary cardiovascular prophylaxis because of the risk of, of rebleed. Um, probably continue aspirin for secondary prevention, given the benefits of reducing ischemic events. And, um, you know, talk to your friends about non-aspirin um, antiplatelet medications, basically, which was very hedgy. But, you know, if they're on DAPT, talk with cardiology was sort of the, the takeaway there. Um, and then they, they said, you know, we, we've done this, but resume anticoagulation, essentially, you know, after cessation of GI bleed, t- uh, timing is un- lower GI bleed specifically, timing is unknown, but within seven days, and um, the benefits outweigh the risks. So uh, I like that they like, you know, put their nickel down on most of that. Um, and it's pretty over, you know, no NSAIDs, no primary aspirin, yes, secondary aspirin, don't know on other antiplatelets, and yes, on anticoagulants. Um yeah, those are the main points. You know, it's a pretty good document. Um, they've got flow charts at the end um, that I think are somewhat beneficial um, or are definitely beneficial. They've got a flow chart for workup. They've got a, uh, a table for antithrombotic stuff. Um, and they also have a table about endoscopic, uh, you know, stuff. But we're not going to talk about that, like what to do in what situation. What kind so, of yeah. clip to use? Exactly. Yeah, I thought it was overall Comments? helpful document. I think it it jives pretty well with how we usually manage. I, I have noticed a lot of patients with lower GI bleeds getting CT angios in the ED, and I think that's appropriate because, yeah, if you can identify an active bleed um, that can be managed by IR, that's great. I like yeah. this Oakland bleeding score. I'm actually, I've never heard of it, and so I think I'm going to use it for those patients that I'm like, it's like slow and staple and we're not going to get, if we can't get a colonoscopy inpatient, um, it's a good, and they have decent follow-up. It's not unreasonable. Yeah. So listeners, check them out. What you got, Jenkins? So the real question is if the patient with the lower GI bleed comes in and they have an acute kidney injury, should I get a CT angio with contrast? That, that's the that's real a good question. Transition. And so and, and so that's what that's what my paper is all about. And Dr. Hoppenfeld, uh, you had mentioned that you had to pick up your children potentially. Are you are you out of here? Mm, I've got like four more minutes. Four more minutes. Well, I will definitely <laughs> not be done in four minutes, but maybe five. Okay. So the paper I have is called Renal Outcomes Following Intravenous Contrast Administration in Patients with Acute Kidney Injury. This was published January 30th in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. And the question that they're trying to get at is, do patients who have an acute kidney injury have an increased risk of a persistent acute kidney injury if they receive IV contrast? So I think a lot of people have come around to the idea that you can give contrast to patients with chronic kidney disease. Like if someone comes in and their GFR is like 35 or 40 or even less than 30, you can give that person contrast and in most cases they're not going to get an acute kidney injury. And a lot of people have, you know, started proclaiming that contrast AKI is not real. And I am one of those people. Um, but the, 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 you know, and so like the National Kidney Foundation has put out guidelines, and radiology has put out guidelines saying like, if you have chronic kidney disease, it's okay to give IV contrast. But there's still been this gray area of, well, what if they're coming in with an acute kidney injury? If I give them contrast, am I going to make it worse? And, and there really hasn't been solid data uh, to answer that question. So that's what these guys are looking at. 
it is a retrospective study. Um, so at the end of the day, we probably can't say for sure if, if the findings are totally valid. I'll, I'll just start with that. The primary outcome is whether or not the patient has persistent AKI based on KDIGO serum creatinine um, criteria. Uh, secondary outcome they looked at was initiation of dialysis within, within 180 days of their ED encounter. So it's a, it's a multi-site retrospective analysis. They used uh, patient visits to three different emergency departments in, in a healthcare system. They included all patients um, who met criteria for acute kidney injury uh, based on a serum creatinine of at least 0.3 milligrams per deciliter increase or 1.5 times their baseline creatinine. Uh, they excluded patients who didn't have a prior baseline serum creatinine in the last 180 days before their ED visits. They also excluded patients who were on dialysis or had a creatinine over four, or patients who were discharged directly from the emergency department because they couldn't measure serial creatinine. So they, they looked initially at 450,000 patients who had a measured serum creatinine in the ER. They excluded 250,000 of those because they didn't have a baseline creatinine to compare to. They excluded another 165,000 patients because they didn't meet criteria for AKI. So ultimately, they had 14,500 patients that they were able to include in their analysis. 80% uh, of those had a stage one acute kidney injury. 14% uh, had stage two, and 8% uh, had a stage three acute kidney injury. Um, so they tried to, you know, balance the, the, the two groups, but the patients who received contrast were more likely to be younger, more likely to be female. They had lower mean serum creatinine values and a higher mean estimated GFR, also more likely to have IV fluids and less likely to have diabetes, hypertension, heart failure, or CKD. So all of those things are definitely uh, potential confounders. So the way they try to deal with that is using inverse probability of treatment weighting, so a form of propensity matching to achieve better balance across the treatment groups. They also use something called entropy balancing. I don't really you know, get the stats behind all of that, but basically all these fancy statistical techniques to try to balance the groups better. Um, so after all of that um, you know, statistical weighting stuff they did, they still had a very small imbalance in their mean estimated GFR. But with the entropy balancing, they're able to get things matched up pretty much exactly. So results, 69% uh, of patients had resolution of their acute kidney injury before discharge. Uh, persistent acute kidney injury was more common in the patients who did not receive IV contrast, 32.7% versus 22.9%. So now there, that's probably in part because people didn't receive contrast media if they were, you know, perceived to be at an increased risk of adverse kidney outcomes. You know, if, you know, you're like, that person's kidneys are like on their last leg. I'm not going to give them contrast because I believe in this fake entity. You know, that, that might explain why there's such a big difference there. I don't know. Um, but they did a bunch of multivariable logistic regression modeling and this propensity weighting and this entropy balancing. And in all cases, they found the same thing, that patients were more likely to have persistent AKI if they didn't get contrast. I don't think that's suggesting that contrast is actually protective or helpful oh to your God. kidneys. Contrast <laughs> is the next SGLT2. It yeah. is renal we should, protective. We should give it to Done. everyone. Yeah, no, but, I, but I, it, it does suggest that it's not bad for your kidneys. So then they, you know, 
they looked uh, at patients specifically who were um, had a GFR less than 30 at the time of presentation, which was 5,500 patients. Um, they found the same results in those patients. Um, you know, no, no increased risk of persistent acute kidney injury and patients who were admitted directly to the ICU from the emergency department, which was 1,850 patients. Same findings there. Uh, there. That big secondary outcome they looked at was initiation of dialysis within 180 days that was seen in 5% of all patients. Again, that was seen more frequently in the patients who did not receive contrast than those who did, 6% versus 2%. So, you know, ultimately, like I said, this is a retrospective study. There was imbalance in the groups that they tried to account for, but there's a lot of, you know, confounders there. Um, and so I think to really say for sure you would need a randomized uh, controlled trial, but I think this paper is a, is a pretty good study showing that contrast is not going to increase your risk of having a persistent acute kidney injury. So if you need to give contrast to your patient to get a study that's important, you should just do it. Last week in medicine says contrast-induced nephropathy is <laughs> gone. And that it's renoprotective is what I've heard. No, it's, <laughs> no, we didn't say that. We didn't say that. Okay. Well, I think, uh, I think that's it for this, this month. So uh, thanks, everyone. Great job. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Yeah, good luck on service, guys, and thanks, Mita. Good to have you here. Thanks, guys. Okay. All right. See ya. Bye.